Once upon a time, many, many moons ago, 20-something-year-old Brie was introduced to the mystics via Richard Rohr's work in The Naked Now. Everything in me lit up at the discovery of these wild, mystical rebels that had somehow been a part of this tradition that I was part of, and yet I never knew it because I grew up Evangi and a Baptist missionary kid and didn't know about these mystics throughout the ages. Reading their embodied experience of the divine was this wild homecoming of recognizing my own embodied experience of the divine. And this is radical, right? Because it insinuates that we don't really need the institution to mediate that. We never have, and we never will. But the more I got into studying the mystics, the more uh, uncomfortable I became with some of the language or the ideas that were being created around these human experiences of the divine. There were architectures that were kind of cropping up around these mystics, and a lot of the things that are taught about the mystics were starting to sound more and more like hierarchy to me, more and more of the domination paradigm that I felt I was trying to escape or had touched upon the trapdoor of escape in encountering these mystics in the first place. I've said it elsewhere on this podcast, as human beings, we can't help ourselves. We just want to institutionalize the shit out of everything. <laughs> so it's like, oh, look, a living tree. Let's pour concrete on it so we can keep it forever. And we've done the exact same thing with a lot of the Christian mystics, especially the medieval mystics. And what we're not realizing is that by glorifying and institutionalizing some of the historical uh, context in which these human beings, real human beings who lived in a particular place in a particular time, um, by uprooting their experience and turning them into these like maps of mystical oneness, we are importing a lot of the cosmologies that were true at their time, but are no longer true in ours. And some of those cosmologies are hierarchical worldviews that keep perpetuating these same ideas of ascent, of sort of traveling out of the body, out of embodiment, to achieve mystical oneness. So, back to the many, many moons ago, baby Brie in her 20s, I encountered the work of a different sort of mystic. Someone handed me a copy of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's Hymn of the Universe, and friends, it was a match made in heaven. This Enneagram 4 had found in this paleontologist and evolutionary priest, uh, mystical thinker, the language and articulation of a mysticism and spirituality that was so deeply rooted in the materiality of this earth. To me, it felt like the next step in mysticism. It was like mysticism elevated into a scientific and ecological worldview. It felt so damn good. But a lot of Teilhard's work is a little bit challenging to digest. I dove headlong into the divine milieu and the human phenomenon and basically everything he wrote ever. I was so obsessed that I even got a couple of 
Teardian tattoos, <laughs> like you do when you're an Enneagram 4. <laughs> it was through my love of Teard and being a part of the Living School for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico that I first encountered the work of Ilia Delio. Ilia Delio is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C. She holds the Josephine C. Connolly Endowed Chair in Theology at Villanova University. She's also the author of 17 books, and she lectures internationally on topics including evolution, artificial intelligence, consciousness, and religion. Quite simply put, Ilya's a badass. Just an absolute revolutionary, just a force of nature. And when I first encountered her teaching, I just went right up to her and, and we connected over Teard and Teardian thinking. I had the privilege and pleasure of working for Ilya for several years, and she has been a dear friend and mentor to this day that makes me giggle and laugh and think and makes my heart explode. So I knew that I had to ask her to join this conversation on composting Christianity, specifically to introduce Teard and to help us all understand the role of Teardian thinking, which was deeply influential in Richard Rohr's latest book, The Universal Christ, and essentially is pointing the way toward a more ecological and embodied understanding of mysticism, one that I think we desperately need to be exploring right now. So with that, let's dive right into episode four on season three of Unknowing Podcast, Composting Christianity with Ilya Delio. So, Ilya, I'm so excited to have you on Unknowing. This has been a really long time coming, like, you know, 10 years in the making. I'm so grateful that you made the time, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Pri. It's great to be with you. So, I usually begin these conversations by asking my guests about the map that they're handed when they were growing up. Mm. You know, what map were you handed, and what were perhaps the critical departures from that map that mm. led you to this point? Wow, that's a good question. So my map began in New Jersey um, in an Italian-American neighborhood where I thought everyone was Italian and American. <laughs> a very small, local, provincial Catholic. Uh, went to Catholic school I never thought much about religion for or against. It just was part of, it was just woven into our culture of the family. So it was, you know, Sunday pasta and Sunday church and not much more. But I always had an attraction to God. So even as a little kid, like I was fascinated by God and kind of just fell in love with God, you know, at some point early on. And God kind of predominated my life. So living as the New Jersey kid, you know, went to Catholic schools because, you know, you had to go to Catholic schools. So I don't know, I inherited a religion that I never thought about. But at the same time, I had a little love story going on with God. But at the other time, I was a baby boomer of the late 70s and part of that post-Woodstock generation. And so the idea was to live wild and free and uncontained by laws. So I'm not sure how all these things fit together. So it was always a matter of trial and error, you know, a little bit experimenting in life. But I never lost that God center in me. I think that fire was always there. 
And then later on, through a lot of journeying through undergraduate and graduate degrees in science and really loving science. I mean, I love science. I, I still do. Um, I miss the lab, actually. Um, and I love discovery. So I'm a discoverer by nature. Mm. And I think that uh, that little God center, that God fire, and the kind of personality of a discoverer came together eventually when my second round of graduate school in theology came across the Jesuit Teilhard de Jardin, who seemed to have a similar personality, quite honestly. You know, someone who was trained in the sciences, who had a who had a little fire, God fire going on in his heart, and just began to see science in a deeper way and developed a whole uh, worldview of science and religion that was way beyond just an intellectual discourse between two disciplines. And so that worldview of Teilhard has really taken root and maybe has been the kindling wood of my little fire um, over the last 15 years or so. And it's kind of interesting. I was a very conservative Catholic, and now I'm sort of a some brand of Catholic that's not quite in the, in the mainstream since a lot of my theology is trying to push the edges into a new holistic worldview. I mean, very much in the ecological framework of deep relationality, uh, deep grace, deep love, you know, and the fact that we do belong to a whole and trying to see how these areas of science and religion can bring us or animate our lives in a more unified way. Well, I'm laughing and encouraged that you also don't know what to call yourself. <laughs> it makes, <laughs> makes me true. really happy to hear you say that, Aaliyah. Because in particular, in this season, we're exploring, you know, a, a little bit of this composting of Christianity, you know, how looking at these historical moments when Christianity became more aligned with empire and domination than with its founder, which is why so many of us have an incredibly difficult time affixing ourselves to, you know, that clear identified term of, yes, I am a Christian, because it means so many different things to so many people now. And it also, in its broadest kind of more public facing identity, has become concomitant with a very disturbing uh, set of ideologies, very anti-body. So, I'm really glad that you kind of jumped into Teilhard because many listeners have joined me from my tenure as a co-host on Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, the podcast that I was on before this one. Mm -hmm. And as you know, his last book was titled The Universal Christ, which is actually a term and concept that Teilhard coined. As you know, I'm also a deep fan of Teilhard. His work completely turned my life upside down, and it's how you and I met and connected. Mm -hmm. But so many people don't know about this French paleontologist and mystic. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about his life. Sure. Yeah, so Teilhard was born in 1881 uh, in France and in a rocky mountainous area of France and grew up in a chateau that was situated in a beautiful natural setting. So he had a love for the earth and for rocks and minerals just from a from childhood on. I think he was one of 11 children, um, either nine or 11. And, you know, a very inquisitive kid who, for one reason or another, got enamored by the Jesuits and went off to the seminary in England and studied there for his... Um, theology. 
But at the same time, he was a bona fide scientist, like he was just one of those nature lovers. So he was sent for studies at the Sorbonne in, and eventually concentrated in paleontology. So he became a noted uh, paleontologist, and the Eocene era was his specialty, which means that his day job was basically digging up old bones. You know, I mean, he was literally in the earth. And he tells us in his writing, so just, you know, for the sake of his biography, so he he's digging up old bones, but he's trying to put together the human story, like what, you know, homo sapiens sapiens, like how did we emerge here? And as he's putting this together, he's someone who has a deep spirituality. I, I would call Teilhard a mystic. Like he's someone who saw that divine light in a much deeper way. He had to be touched by God early on in his life to experience that. He began to see even his work of science with this kind of mystical eye. By mystical, I mean, he saw that there was something, even as he was holding like a fossil, he said, this is more than just a mere bone. This is more than just mere dirt. There's an incredible fire here. There's a wholeness here. There's something that's indestructible here. And that, you know, kind of over time led him to begin to see that science and religion are not in conflict. They are not two separate disciplines that we have to have an ongoing dialogue about. They are two ways of knowing the world. And so he wrote a lot of things to try to bring these two disciplines into an integrative worldview. But of course, as a scientist, as a biologist, a paleontologist, he rejected original sin. And that just threw him in the forbidden list book of the church, the Catholic church. And he was never allowed to publish anything during his lifetime, which is rather sad because he, he never could... Uh, revise his work. He could not take any comments from others and, and realize he missed a point here or could have said something better here. So all we have are the writings that he bequeathed to his secretary, Jean Mortimer, and thank God for this woman who saw that this incredible value of this, this French Jesuit and allowed his writings to be published posthumously. But the fact is, Teilhard died a lonely person and like completely unaware that his writings had any significance for anyone. He basically suffered a heart attack at the age of 74. He was exiled from France, exiled from the Jesuits basically, and was not allowed back into his country. So he died in New York City with like one or two Jesuits around him who didn't know him. It was like, who is this French guy? You know, he just died and just buried in this little common grave and the Hastings on the Hudson. And it's only now, I think only 100 years later, that we're really beginning to see the brilliance of his insights and his work. Yeah, wow. I want to dive right in and bring up ontologies, this, you know, the different philosophical descriptions of the nature of being, to dig into why Teilhard's work is so revolutionary. So I remember as being a student at the Living School for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, I brought up this question when, when Teilhard was introduced, when, you know, they first brought Teilhard and, you know, we we're all reading Teilhard, because up until that point, most of the mystics that we had been studying had pretty static ontological worldviews. There's just a lot of emphasis on oneness and on unitive consciousness. And I'm like, 
y'all, that that's great. I'm really happy for the oneness. But it's still static. It's like a layered cake or a ladder. Like people were trying to, you know, ascend to God to have this oneness or yeah. open themselves up to have, or it was this, you know, nuptial mystic, you know, ecstatic yeah. <laughs> state of oneness. <laughs> but it was still static, and it really bothered me until Teilhard, because Teilhard introduces an evolutionary ontology. So instead of a cake or a ladder, it's almost like a braid being woven through time. I mean, he really put everything yeah. into motion, uh, mm -hmm. weaving itself into new complex possibilities. So yeah. why is Teilhard's ontology, in your view, a much better fit for Christianity as yeah. a foundation, instead mm -hmm. of the Platonic foundation, it's been incompatible with and yet has been predominantly forced to rest on. Yeah, no, that's a good question, right? So, you know, this is a philosophical question in the sense that um, how did Teilhard understand existence or being? And so he writes, I would say, a little bit sporadically on this. He didn't systematize his ideas. But what we do have is that, first of all, he's an evolutionary thinker. And an evolutionary thinker is one who thinks in terms of the way biological life complexifies. So as a biologist, he, he was very interested in processes, in relationships, and then the way systems form, in other words, how things form over time, using words like groping or you know sifting out or testing the areas. So his notion of reality was a dynamic notion. It was a way that reality was constantly forming and reforming for the optimization of life. But then he says, you know, there's something going on here that's even more than just biological preservation or adaptation, you know, to the environment. And he speaks of it in terms of a core energy of love. And I think sometimes we think, you know, for Teilhard, love is not an affect, you know, it's not an emotion per se, it's an energy of attraction. And what he's saying here is there's this core energy of attraction, even within the smallest molecules, um, leptons, quarks, whatever, there's some kind of attractability that is pulling things together and unifying them in some way. And so he speaks of love, uh, a philosophy of love. And by doing that, what he does is he shifts the ontology from being to relationship. It's an ontology of relationality. So relationships are primary or, or they're first. And out of those relationships, being emerges. And therefore, it's that constant relationships are never static. <laughs> and so relationality itself is an ongoing, infinite, you might say, openness to ever-deepening relationships, which is what I think complexity refers to. Complexity refers to the way things come together, form new relationships, and overlapping relationships, deepening relationships. And so um, what Teilhard is saying is something is taking place within the material world that's more than mere materiality. And so whether we speak in terms of love or consciousness, which is what he used, he was very in tune with quantum physics and was impressed by the way quantum physics had renewed a place for the mind in relation to matter. Uh, and he's saying it's not just mere matter. And it's not that mind is somehow over the body or somehow mind is a superior to the body. It is that the body is mind. <laughs> 
uh, it is right, that the body is part and parcel of what the mind is. So Teilhard, I think, develops, again, not in a systematic way, but he develops ideas that are very, very confluent with what we're finding today in the new materialist philosophy and some of the emerging ecological philosophies. And that is that matter uh, has a twofoldness. It has a withinness, he said, this energy of transcendence. We might call it consciousness or mind, and it has an energy, an outer dimension of attractability. And so what he's saying is this twofold nature of matter is such that evolution, life, just orients itself towards more being and more consciousness. That is, so it's very different from the Ptolemaic worldview or that static medieval cosmology hierarchy in the sense of ontological differences in the levels of being. Mm -hmm. These are rather emergent being actually reverses the platonic scheme instead of the one giving rise to the many and the many returning to the one. In Teilhard's evolutionary scheme, the many are emerging in the one flows from the many. It is not the source of the many, it's the outcome of the many. And by one, one is the many. That's the whole point. <laughs> There's not a unification. They're actually the rich diversity of life in its true relationality. And that is when it comes into true mutuality and reciprocity, it is truly unified in that beingness, but it is also truly alive in the rich diversity of life. And so I think that's what Teilhard will mean by the concept of omega. It's that symbol of complexified consciousness, matter, and love and relation to what we call divinity, uh, divine being. I would say his ideas they're not simple because they're complex. <laughs> complex yeah. means you can't separate out one aspect and another right. and try to analyze these things. You have to see them as a whole or you don't see them at all. Yeah, that's helpful, Ilya, because I do think for many listeners, if this is the first time that you've been introduced to Teilhard, your mind is blown. You're already like lost. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to spend some time talking about these things. But a helpful image may be to consider the orchestra, right? Or consider a symphony, which is there are many, many parts that are moving that create the symphonic whole. So what we're going to do now is kind of dive in to hear a little bit of the different sections of Teilhard. Teilhard, if we can, Ilya. I was trying to break this down as I was prepping for this conversation, and I sort of was like, okay, here's some of the notes that harmonize when I mm -hmm. think about Teilhard. Mm -hmm. In terms of how he metabolized, or how I see him as an example of someone who composted Christianity, mm -hmm. as somebody who metabolized and was able to alchemically convert <laughs> mm -hmm. what wasn't helpful or what was no longer useful about the containers mm -hmm. to make room for and allow the contents to be enlivened mm -hmm. and to take flight. Yeah. And um, so I want to do that. I want to give our listeners a little bit of an overview of that. So here are some of the reframes that Teilhard did. One, matter and spirit are one. Teilhard says, there's nothing profane here below for those who know how to see. So this is the notion of the universal Christ. I want to dig into that one. Two, um, God is not apart or above, but within and ahead. So creation is not a past event. It didn't happen. And we are not in a linear causal 
timeline here. We're not all trying to, you know, we're not all screwed because Eve got hungry and, you know, had to have an apple. (laughs) Three, the energy of love or evolution flows toward complexification, which is what you just talked about, which sometimes I call moreness, (laughs) just to simplify it. It's the moreness, which means that our creative or the creative instinct is divine. I love that reframe. And four, what we used to call sin, or what has been known as sin in the Christian uh, lexicon, he called resistance. He said it's the reverse side of creation. Mm -hmm. And it is, in my words, I would say, an inherent ache that exists as a foundational tension through which creativity or evolution unfolds. Mm-hmm. So those are four harmonizing notes. I wonder mm-hmm. if I'm missing any or if you want to comment on any of those pieces. No, I think those are good, Brie. Yeah, I think they're I think they pretty much, you know, get at various aspects of Teilhard's thought to get a better picture, more comprehensive picture of his system. Yeah. Okay. Well, Let's dig in then, Ilya, an implication of this worldview, this harmonizing, I mean, it's radical stuff, right? I mean, no wonder he was outlawed by the church and silenced, because this is still radical for us today. So, an implication of this worldview that Teilhard presents us with is that because matter matters, right? Because because matter is divine and divinely infused— And because the direction of evolution is toward relationality, toward the complexity of deepening those relationships, there's a responsibility there, right? Like there's there's a vulnerability and a responsibility, which are two aspects that I believe are central to the life of a maker or a courageous creator. Um, What I describe on this show is the values of someone who is embracing unknowing in a participatory, ecological, and creative way. And this brings us to one of Teilhard's students who took up the mantle of his work, but then began to tease out the social justice implications. And that's the work of Beatrice Bruteau. Now, listeners of this show have heard me quote Beatrice so much that they're like probably making a drinking game out of it right now. They're like, oh, let's take a shot. She brought up Bruteau again. But especially in talking about how she described an ecological and reciprocal worldview that she calls a communion paradigm as the hope and remedy to a domination paradigm. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could help us connect the dots between these two great thinkers and how Beatrice's work might help us metabolize Teilhard's worldview into the social implications, into praxis, into how we might actually live this out. If we want to really get to the heart of Teilhard, there's two things maybe to point out here. One, I love your term, composting religion. That is brilliant because there's something that is being discarded, but in that discard, there's there's seeds here, there's nourishment for life, you know, and we want to really sift through that stuff for the nourishment for life. That's exactly what Teilhard saw in Christianity. So he's, he's a Catholic priest, right? And it's not just because he's Catholic, as he tells us at one point, I would have been a Christian anyway, doesn't matter, because there's something here that's really compost for life. And it's the way divinity is part and parcel of materiality. In fact, uh, I just wrote this book called The Not Yet God, where I deal with the question of pantheism, because Teilhard actually has a chapter on Christian pantheism 
in his essays on Christianity and religion. And of course, you know, we, we are so like, oh, pantheism, oh no, you know, like they've collapsed everything. It's just all dun, matter. Dun, dun. There's existential despair and no exit. You know, you mentioned matter and spirit. Teilhard's first point is matter matters. That's the whole thing. Matter. So we can't, we talk quickly through matter, you know, like we go right to the big ideas. So we abstract from matter quickly and we want to kind of, you know, engage in these big picture ideas, but I want to bring it down to the level of matter, like matter, like the cells, the, the neurons, the little particles, you know, of dirt that really form everything about us, the ground on which we walk, the cells of our skin, you know, the stuff that makes our blood pump. Um, matter, you know, in Teilhard's view, matter is energy. I mean, that's the one thing we're learning today, right? From, you know, thank God for Al Einstein, you know, and, and relativity is like, energy is the name of the game. But we don't, if we use the word language of energy, we're so used to thinking about matter as something that's inner and substantive and energy is something that matter has. Mm -hmm. Energy is what matter is. And I think that is, you know, an important point here. And that's why nature is so dynamic. Spirit is the higher energy portion of matter. And that's why spirit and matter are indeed, you know, two aspects of the same stop. Like matter is constantly as it's moving in evolution, it's becoming more spirit insofar as the energy is increasing, which is fascinating in a world that's wearing down. <laughs> so it's that we're not in entropy, although we feel like we're dissipating sometimes. But he says there's something that's building up. And I think the first thing for, to shift our paradigm, Teilhard is a thinker who looked at what he inherited in terms of all the doctrines and stuff, but he looked at them with new eyes. He was free. You have to be free enough to look at this stuff with new eyes and be free enough to allow what they're pointing to, you know, maybe the doors that they're opening and to enter through those doors in a new way. And that's what he did, you know, and he's saying like, well, you know, matter is deeply alive. In fact, he would say, quite honestly, he found the absolute in matter. That's his pantheism. And we're like, what, you know, what does that mean? You find the absolute in matter. We're pretty sure that that's not true. And if we could do that, we would no longer have an ecological problem. <laughs> if we really felt that matter has an absolute, a divinity to it, a deep sacredness, something of eternal value, we would not destroy it. But the fact is we don't. And so we have built these paradigms of domination, right? So because matter is just stuff you move around, you know, like parts, like male matter, you know, is like more intellectual, you know, it's more powerful over female matter, which can be dominated is more submissive. And that's just pure nonsense, quite honestly. You know, I mean, there's nothing from ecology or the biological sciences or matter itself that could lead us in that direction. So Teilhard is saying matter has a power. The power is fire. He called it intelligence. He called it spirit. And I think the first thing we have to do in our conversions <laughs> is go back and feel the power of matter itself. We really have to just stay with matter. 
we too quickly in our world, we're in thought, you know, we're in computers, we're in virtual realities, Mm. and we're losing a sense of the touch of matter. So if we, you know, do that, then he begins to say, well, what is this power? What is this power of matter? Why are we here after 13.8 billion years of universe life? Why are we here on this earth after 4.2 billion years of earth life? If it's just carbon and nitrogen and helium and hydrogen, there's really no good reason why I should be here talking to you. <laughs> but there's, there's something, there's the something else. There's something mm. more. And if, if you don't want to name it God, that you can just name it the more, the whole. There's something that's holding the whole together. And that's what drew Teilhard's attention. And, you know, if you open his book on the human phenomenon, the first opening lines is, on the whole, we are to see the whole, the whole in its entirety, in its reality. What he's saying is we humans are a fact of nature. We're not some drop down heavenly divine beings. You know, we're not special creations of God. We're facts of nature. We emerge after a long, long periods of catastrophic events in nature. And yet, it's fantastic. We're like a miracle, you know, that we can think, that we can reflect on these questions, that we can talk about a world, about a universe. And he's saying that if you see what we are within the whole, then you'll have a whole new understanding of what God is about. And therefore he's saying the domination paradigms, as we well know, They've been artificial from the beginning, right? They're artificial constructs of patriarchy. And you just have to name it for what it is. They're coming to an end and they're fighting tooth and nail. You know, they don't want to die, but they will. And so there's something that's emerging here. And emergence, I mean, because of the internet and because of computer technology, we expect everything immediate. If I say I want a better world, that it should happen by tomorrow or by the end of the week, and it's simply not how life works, right? And that's why Teilhard's prayer, trust in the slow work of God, you know, trust in the slow power of love. We need slowed life. We need to slow down, to touch matter and feel it, to really feel matter in its power and its intelligence and its fire. And that Feeling means we have to feel within our own bodies, right? And I think part of what I've learned in doing my own book is the questions that we're bringing here, I think, really speak to how we've become locked into low levels of consciousness. I mean, you know, if you look at the brain in terms of its, you know, triune brain, which is for shorthand, you know, the part that will just keep us going, you know, the archicortex, and then we have paleocortex, which is survival. And I think where a lot of us are living on the paleocortical level, you know, and not the neocortical, like we have the capacity, this is what Jung realized, we have the capacity for infinite potential, we can actualize that potential into new forms of reality. Teilhard in his own way had a similar idea, but he doesn't speak in terms of psychology. But what he's saying is we have the capacity to be God. And he doesn't use that language, but Jung does. He's saying that we have a divine nature. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is like 
that is just crazy. That's like the last thing, you know, <laughs> we would ever talk about. And I'm saying, no, it's the first thing we should talk about. Because if we really recognize the fact that we have a divine nature, that we are God in the making, that's the whole point. I don't think we do what half of what we do to one another. Our thoughts about God need to change. <laughs> we have inherited God ideas that are so unhealthy, you know, like all, for all sorts of reasons. You know, God is like the great sky God, you know, the big guy in the sky, the one who's judging us, blah, 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 blah. All of it's just wrong. <laughs> it's just, it's just not true. And it never was true, quite honestly. If you go back to scripture, I mean, God is not a sky God. God is like, hey, you know, I want to be in relationship with you. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that's the kind of God Teilhard is trying to bring to life. And so I think Beatrice picks up on that. And Beatrice, brilliantly, you know, speaks about the evolution of personhood. We are not persons. We are hope to be persons. We're individuals. We're partials seeking to become whole. And I think we have to take a step back and think, oh, we have all the answers. We just need a new paradigm to fit them in. It's not that way. We humans are the problem because we've had systems that tell us what we think we are, but we have to discover what we are. And I think a paradigm is how things are related to one another, you know, and I think that what we are called to is to rethink not our relationships. Unfortunately, we're ontologizing relationships these days. You know, we're making relationships the object mm. of our attention. They are not objects of our attention. Mm. They are the root reality of our lives. And if I keep throwing my attention outside myself, then I avoid the hard work of really coming to myself. That is really what we have to do. And I think the path of spirituality, the discipline that spirituality brings, those need to come back into focus in a real way, but in a vital way. You know, we have to come to terms with ourselves mm. and the stuff that we really just kind of stuff within our, you know, one part of our brain. And it's why I think politics and religion have aligned because we're looking for a system to save us. And the only one who can save us is ourself. Um, and I think, you know, Teilhard said it well. He said, we will be saved by an option that has chosen the whole. And that means we have to become whole. Mm. We have to choose to be part of a whole. And we have to make whole the systems that we find ourselves in. I love what you're doing, which is you're bringing us back into an embodied awareness, right? Because this is part of the work. And this wholeness that you're describing is a cellular remembering of becoming membered to this materiality that we are. And Bruteau says, and you brought up this idea of personhood, and I want to tease it out a little bit. Bruteau says, the more conscious the individual becomes, the more the individual becomes person. And each person is person only to the extent that the individual freely lives by the life of the whole. Mm -hmm. So in describing this personhood, you say in your book, A Hunger for Wholeness, you say, this type of consciousness opposes power, control, and domination. Rather, it is the consciousness of belonging, of mutual affirmation, participation, and creative love by which one gives one's own self freely to others, right? You're naming the power of choice there. This is something that, again, it's like it's so simple, it seems obvious, but it's actually really hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? Which is that 
what we can give away is what we come into membership with. And our membership is that which puts us in touch with that sense of belonging to the whole. So this personhood is a remembrance, a process of becoming membered once more Mm -hmm. to an ecological reciprocal membership of wholeness. Yeah. And this is important because, you know, here we are trying to tease out on on season three of this show how to compost Christianity. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've been super transparent with my listeners. Like, I don't really know what I am. I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know that I'm not. I don't belong to a community. I haven't been to church in ages. And as I sit here trying to metabolize these ideas— of shifting out of domination paradigms into a communion or ecological paradigm. One of the things that I'm thinking a lot about, Ilya, is what am I membering myself to? (laughs) Like, what am I joining? And what am I allying myself with in the choices I'm making? Sure, but even in in what I choose to participate in or what organizations I, I, you know, decide to align myself with. Which brings me to the question of church. Could you talk to us about how you see the idea of church, which is so much of what we associate with Christianity, right? Like this belonging to a group that gathers on a Sunday. And I'm wondering if that's another aspect of what needs to be composting. Like, how do you see, you know, the the church operating in this hierarchical, you know, model that disembodies us, right? It pulls us apart. And how beginning to think of the church in a more open system, to borrow, you know, the biological term autopoiesis. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Autopoiesis. Um, you talk about it in um, your book, Making All Things New. Mm-hmm. How could this be a movement toward a more environmental, ecological membership form of relating that we were just speaking of? I like the term Catholic with a small c because it really means having a consciousness or a sense of the whole from katholikos, from the Greek, katoholos. Um, and therefore, I, if, I, if I say, well, I am Catholic, I really want to say I'm a homemaker, <laughs> you know. Uh, but mm. in terms of the institution, I do think, honestly, I think Christianity ended around 325 AD. I think if I, if I look at, you know, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he came to terms with himself, his higher levels of consciousness, his God consciousness. And he acted out of that inner sense of freedom and call. And therefore, he was not deterred by Jewish law or you know what people were saying or talking about. And that's the type of consciousness, I think, that is truly typical. So if I were to compost Christianity, I'd like to regain that consciousness that was modeled in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Because I think what the church has done, unfortunately, in its patriarchal construct, where power and authority and obedience trump any type of personal formation into higher levels of consciousness. In fact, you almost have to leave your mind at the door before you enter the church because, you know, someone else is going to tell you what to think and what to do. Right. There are a lot of good people in the church. So don't, and I hate to be overly simplistic in this way because I've seen a lot of wonderful people doing really good work in social justice and ecology and even Pope Francis and his, you know, his Laudato Si encyclical, his concern for the poor. I want to acknowledge that it's not the Pope or anything per se. 
it's that the system as system is really stuck uh, in a sense on a level of consciousness that can never really attain the aims of the New Testament. Hmm. It's safe, it's secure, it's predictable. It's like Newton's universe, you know, just tell us what to do, you know, and we'll do it. And it's just that it's incompatible with actually how nature works. And it's one of the problems of patriarchy that it has co-opted from nature power and it's consolidated and says, we have the answers. We're going to tell you how to run the ship. Hmm. And of course, actually, I think it's coming to an end, but with a very, very, very slow death. I do think what I see emerging is a new ecological consciousness. In other words, hmm. I think the brain is rewiring, quite honestly, um, along lines of deep relationality, hyperpersonalism. Uh, and so I think in time, and I think Teilhard intuited this in his own way, in time, patriarchy will give way to a new type of holarchy. Hmm. And I think a new systems of religious might not even use words as self isolated disciplines anymore. <laughs> you know, um, we need new language, mm -hmm. quite honestly, to, mm -hmm. to define and shape our new reality. But I do think patriarchy is a closed system. In other words, it can only function if there's work continued that, you know, energy put into that system, which means you need new priests and, you know, need new ordained ministers. Open systems are always you know, far from equilibrium, they're always in instability because they're open to the environment. But the system is stable insofar it is constantly self-regulating itself. And, you know, if we were to think of church, you know, in that way, or ecclesia or communal gatherings of focal attention on sacred meaning and, you know, div the divine wholeness that, you know, uh, imbues us with life, we might definitely would have Persons as persons would be engaged in relationship, whether you're gay, straight, married, you know, whatever your gendered racial stance may be, it's all beautiful and it's all welcomed because you as a person are an irreplaceable whole that's part of this larger whole. And I think we have to shift our categories from, I think even today, we tend to objectify everything. Even race and gender is becoming objectified and we keep missing the person. Hmm. Where is the person? That's always my question. <laughs> so an open system, I think will be personally formative hmm. and it reforms when personhood itself you know, is being quenched, dissolved, or just ironed out. And so that the system itself, an open system church, is one always oriented toward the future, always oriented toward a greater fullness of love, um, always oriented toward beauty. Uh, and, and therefore, it's, it should be life-giving. Religion, and this is something both Teilhard and Jung realized, religion is a natural part of individuation. Religion is as natural to us as water and air. And I think we have made it something that's extra, that's a divine grace somehow that, you know, you get a baptism or some silliness like this. <laughs> it's really part and parcel. And we will continue to be all over the map unless we get religion rerooted in its natural formation. It's part of what we are. We are called to be God people, divine people, sacred people. And that means we're called to be truly embodied people. We're called to be really 
alive in our bodies, in our hearts, in our feelings, our emotions. Be at home with instability. Be at home with ambiguity. Mm, Be at home mm. with unanswered questions. Mm. You know, unknowing. <laughs> Be at home with unknowing, and yet in that being at home, in the unreconciled question, have an openness to discovery, to spontaneity, to the way life just can you know spring up in whole new ways. That's the question of vision, of seeing. Because usually we think we're seeing, but we're blinded by our own egos, quite honestly, by our own self-concerns. I want to just emphasize something that you just said, because I think if listeners didn't catch it, I think minds and hearts will be blown by this. That this idea of religiosity or church is a superimposed concept to what is already true. This is what you're saying, which is if we come home to ourselves, if we slow down into this personhood, this wholeness, this relational wholeness, then we are already churching. We are already a membered part of a collection of members exactly. that will pull us through love mm -hmm. into greater personhood, which is greater wholeness. So for all of those who are listening, who are, you know, wandering in the wilderness of the post-church mutts like me, <laughs> like, what are we exactly? We don't know. We don't go to church. What is that? There's nothing wrong with that. You're saying maybe just by slowing down, by making this an embodied practice of slowness, of ecological awareness and intentionality, in deepening those love relationships with our environment and the people in our lives and, and in our neighborhoods and beyond in our, in our communities, that is churching. Yes. I mean, actually, if you go back to scripture, you know, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. This is John 2, I think it is. And everyone says, how can you rebuild it? It took 45 years to build this temple. And the author says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And St. Paul says, do you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? There's nothing in the New Testament that says build a church, right? What we do have is you are the temple of, you are where God is dwelling. <laughs> you are the church. Start a church. <laughs> so we've lost sense of that. I think the New Testament is a radical revolution of institution. It's a kind of a new vision that God dwells in the human person. Like we are the church. And therefore, if we actually lived out of that reality, we would come together on a whole new level, right? We would be church because each of us is church. And so we would be church because we would actually live out of a new center of love. We sort of like skipped over some of these passages in the New Testament, like, oh yeah, that means like, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit is in the church. <laughs> like, no, it means it's within you. Uh, so <laughs> you, so, so, so we don't want to empower people. That's basically the problem here. Patriarchy never wants to empower people. It wants to say, no, 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 you're, you're not the spirit. Like, you, you know, you're not God, believe me, you know, take that back. We have the uh, power here, you know, of mediators of the Holy Spirit or whatever. I'm like, eh, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm reading here. So I think Jesus is a radical revolutionary. I think truthfully, if we really compost Christianity, it, we will be radical in our thinking, not just having a few new thoughts. The radicalization of life is actually disclosing the divine roots of all matter. You know, it's to say that we are, you know, God in the making, matter is God in the making. The whole thing is incarnation. 
And so we've been too small. We're too, we're too a little afraid of what's going to happen if we actually were to name what, what's going on here. And I think people now are saying, we need something. We need to break this open. Teilhard did in his own way. So did Jung in his own way. And, and we each have to do our part because you will be church. I think church is where people gather in love. And where there's love, there's God. Mm. There was one time when, um, I don't remember where we were. I think it was like a Teilhard conference maybe in New York. And we were walking out of some building. <laughs> it's too long ago to remember. And you looked at me and you said, you know, if Christians actually figured out what incarnation was, it would be revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And kind of laughing together, you were you were saying like, yeah, incarnation isn't, it, they, they haven't figured that one out yet. Like incarnational mysticism is a premise that is there at the center of Christianity that Christianity hasn't even woken up to. <laughs> that's Teilhard's, yeah, that's Teilhard's basic idea. Mm-hmm. Right. So... I want to end here by reading a little bit uh, from your book, The Unbearable Wholeness of Being, in closing. And, you know, listeners are familiar with my constant emphasis on creativity. I tell everyone who listens to the show, listen, you're a maker because each of us is making something out of every choice we make in this life. So I want to read this passage. You say, The incarnation speaks to us of a world filled with God, but only a heart in love with matter can see this God-filled world. Teilhard's secular mysticism calls for oneness of heart with God. And this is, you're quoting uh, Teilhard here. He says, I merge myself through my heart with the very heart of God. You say, this heart-centered being in the world is a penetrating vision that sees the divine depth of worldly things. And this is one of my favorite Teilhard quotes. God is at the tip of my pen, my spade, my brush, my needle, of my heart, and of my thought. By pressing the stroke, the line or the stitch on which I am engaged, I shall lay hold of that last end toward which my innermost will tends. And then you close by saying this, Ilya. In every action, we must adhere to the creative energy of God to coincide with it and become its living extension. I think for me, this Teilhardian view of God being at the tip of my pen is why creativity has become, for me, the expression of an incarnational mysticism. Because it's that inner authority that you were talking about earlier, like, who, with whose authority do you dare to live this creative, you know, say these things, do these things? And this emphasis on creativity as incarnational mysticism goes hand in hand for me with an ecological worldview because it's embodied. It's about touch and being touched. It's about reciprocal enlivenment. And you've said elsewhere that evolution is not driven by more information, but by more being. And I love this moreness, and I want to end on this moreness, this this hope of moreness, because the entire premise of unknowing is letting go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. So, Ilya, what would you say as a closing thought do we need to unknow to make room for the enlivenment of what could be? I think we have to unknow that, you know, to think that we are replaceable subjects or that 
no one really cares about us or it doesn't matter. I'm just a statistic, you know, in a humanless system. We have to unknow those things. We have to unknow a God who's going to judge us or a God who is hovering over us, like watching every move and saying, oh, no, don't do that. (laughs) Um, Unknow all that stuff. It's so unhealthy. Uh, And know, first of all, how precious you are. Um, The preciousness of being alive, the preciousness of each person, um, and, you know, the beauty of being you, the beauty of your gifts, the beauty of your laugh, the beauty of your thoughts, your ideas. No thought is too great or too small. Every thought just contributes something to this whole in a unique way. And so I think we have to really reclaim the beauty of the human person as person, as really as this person, all the beauty that makes this person unique and lovable. And to know that, you know, in that beauty is love. That is what that beauty is, that you have been loved from all eternity. You know, Um, you're not just a fluke of the cosmic DNA. You're a lovable, unique being. And for all eternity, Each person is called to love to the best they can. We have to help one another in this way. That's what we're called to do. We're helped to bring out the best in one another, that we can each shine like a star in the universe for all eternity. We have the capacity to do this, but our systems so militate against it. The systems have to come to an end, and religion has played a role, unfortunately, in in composting it. I love breathe this, this term you know, is probably one of the most important things we can do right now. So don't give up because you are, you know, you are that deep rootedness of God. You are what God wants to be when God grows up. And so love yourself and love the earth and love one another. And if you fall in love and stay in love, love will teach you where to go. Mm. Wow. (laughs) You, um, Ilya, you've played such a vital role in encouraging, enlivening, in giving me courage and helping me be enlivened to feel that permission to expand beyond the maps and the borders and the territories that were too small for me. Um, And I know you've done that for so many. And I want to thank you for animating and enlivening us in this conversation today. Thank you, Ilya. Thanks, Brie. Thank you, and blessings on your work. So, we're learning to look up from Ptolemaic maps, or from any maps that we've inherited, philosophical maps that teach us to disembody and disconnect, to believe in hierarchy instead of communion. Here are a few of the pieces of true North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. Matter matters, matter matters, full stop. (laughs) The here-ness, which is to be here, to descend into sensory awareness of the present moment, which is an embodied state of attention and awareness and presence, is to open ourselves up to the relationality of being, to the idea that we are a relationship, that there is no I that's separate from the relationships that comprise us, and that the more that we slow down into this 
embodied sensory presence, the more we are choosing an alternative to the domination paradigm that would just have us distracted, that would keep us going a million miles an hour, that would continue to arbitrarily place our arrival points everywhere but here. <laughs> so hereness, being present in the body and to the relationship that our body is part of, to the membership that we belong to, this is radical stuff. We care about what we love. So when we open ourselves to the web of relationality, we are remembering our love relationships all around us with the human and more than human. And guess what? That's going to change you. It's going to make you into a different sort of person because the things you're going to care about are going to shift to include that web, uh, that relational field that you are. Okay, this isn't quite a piece of true North wisdom, but I just thought it was an amazing, hilarious moment when Ilya said that Christianity ended in 325 AD. I don't know about you, but I just, I felt such relief in hearing somebody articulate that. It was like, okay, so can we all just acknowledge that we've been in post, some sort of post hangover, weird institutional hangover ever since then. So we can stop acting like, walking away from the institutional version of Christianity is somehow problematic. But this brings me to what we could maybe say is the second piece of true North wisdom, which is pantheism. To just accept that God is Godding God's self in this material reality, in us as us, and us being all of us, not just humans, but more than human as well. And I just loved that Ilya said, if we really grasped this, this kind of incarnational mystical worldview, if we really, really digested that and metabolized it, we would be radically different humans on this planet. We would behave in completely different ways. Third piece of true North wisdom, the institutional notion of church is an artificial superimposed idea on a reality that is already true, which is your membership to the whole is inherent. It's already there. It's already available. So our praxis, if you're a post-church mutt, <laughs> creative, ecological mutt like me, our practice is about learning how to orient ourselves to the community of relationships that we already are in our environment and slowing down in that way and reconnecting, rerouting ourselves, that's the new practice of church. That's it for today's episode. Speaking of communal remembrance and recognizing our relational wholeness, I wanna invite you to consider becoming a patron of the show to help to keep unknowing going, to make it possible for me to continue to produce this season and future seasons I also want to invite you to consider for year-end giving, giving a uh, tax-deductible donation to Unknowing. You can find out more on the links listed on the show notes. Next week on Unknowing Podcast, Composting Christianity with one of my favorite humans on the planet, Bayo Akumulafe. Bayo is considered by so many as one of the most important thinkers of our time. You know this is going to be juicy. I was so excited to have him back on the show and Damn, it was an incredible conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. Lastly, as you know, I always like to end the show with a bit of poetry. 
The excerpt of poetry that I've chosen for season three is from David White, Sweet Darkness. He says, You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.